okay. We made it. The United States of America survived another two weeks. Maybe there's hope after all. Maybe, maybe it's not all going to come crashing down. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll be fine. Let's start the show. My name is Joe Harrison. I am a Christian in America. As a child, I grew up in politically right-leaning Christian circles, where answers to many big questions were just taken for granted. Questions like, is the Republican Party Jesus's party? Can you be a Christian and vote Democrat? Be a Democrat? Is America still a Christian nation? Was it ever? Should it be? I am now an adult who feels spiritually and politically homeless because I spent the last several years observing, dialoguing, and most importantly, listening. And I am now on a journey to revisit those big questions and perhaps rethink the answers I once felt so certain about. This is my journey to find Jesus Christ in the American church. I feel like at this point it's become very unnecessary to specify that this past week has been crazy because that makes it seem like the craziness is abnormal and as we all know in 2020 craziness being an abnormality is far from the truth. Welcome back my name is Joe Harrison and I am a Christian in America and like the rest of y'all I am doing my best to just survive the day-to-day -day life. I don't think I talked about this in, I don't know what my accent was doing there, uh, about, I don't think I talked about this in uh, any previous episodes, but I was at home for almost half a year. Uh, I know there's people who are still at home and will probably, probably be at home for a very long time as there are still certain restrictions on certain businesses and in certain states. New Jersey is not one of them. New Jersey is is on the, the fast track to reopening for better or for worse. Um, but I was working right up until March 27th. And <laughs> it's really weird remembering back to this because it was a Friday and it was a day at which, you know, I clocked out at the end of the day and I was excited uh, looking forward to the to, to the weekend and you know just like any normal Friday I I said goodbye to my co-workers and my boss I told them I would see them on Monday and then the weirdest thing happened Monday never came I'm trying to remember I think what happened was uh, Saturday was when the panicked phone calls started there was there was panic back and forth phone calls between myself and my boss and there was some <laughs> There was some determination, at least my boss and his father were trying to determine whether or not a fake palm tree manufacturer fell into the category of a essential business that is re allowed to remain open. I think you can probably figure out the outcome of that. I worked from home through April and May, and then we ran out of remote work, so I was put on unemployment, and so I had complete control of my personal schedule for a little over three months. And it was really interesting. It was a really interesting time period for me, and not just those three months, but really the entirety of my time at home. 
Um, one of the things I dealt with, though it was thankfully very brief, was my own anxiety and panic over the coronavirus itself. I've got quite an assortment of health complications, so I am technically considered high risk, or at the very least semi-high risk. And, you know, there were plenty of horror stories in the news about immunocompromised people getting the virus and either dying, worst case scenario, or best case scenario, surviving, but with lasting health complications. And understandably, I wasn't, and still am not, too enthusiastic about dealing with either of those. So, I, you know, I did my part to, both my wife and I did our part to stay locked away in our household. Uh, we didn't even drive our vehicle for almost two months. And I stupidly forgot to turn it on every now and again, which is what you're supposed to do if you're not really driving your car a whole lot. And so, of course, the battery died and that presented its own assortment of problems. But anyway, yeah, we, we primarily stayed cooped up in our apartment. I made very heavy use of services like Instacart and DoorDash and, and other uh, delivery apps. It was, it was nice, actually. I mean, except that Almost every Instacart order had some kind of error, whether it was missing items from my list or incorrect items. I I, uh, I actually remember putting in an order for bananas, and this is this is a I, I I've seen other stories like this floating around the internet. So apparently, this is a pretty common issue when you're selecting something like bananas. You can specify whether the the number you put in the quantity you've written in is pounds or is it whole bananas so if i put in the number three i have to specify do i mean three whole bananas or three pounds of bananas you probably know where this is going i put in the number one <laughs> and i selected pounds i checked it several times because i wanted one pound of bananas and i was not given one pound of bananas i was given one banana and a very small one at that well i should say it's funny now but as, as frustrating as it was, I didn't really feel I could blame the shoppers. I mean, it was a really bizarre time, and it really still is. Even And it was even frightening for a lot of people. Whether, whether you were actually scared or not, you were still subject to some bizarre things that we've never really had to deal with in our lifetime before, which is things like mask wearing and, and social distancing. And with my, my particular grocery store, there was, and actually still is, uh, a new pandemic rule put in place where aisles are one way. And they have these humongous arrows on the floor showing you which direction you're supposed to travel in particular aisles. Of course, many, 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 many people totally disregard those rules, some out of negligence, I'm sure. I mean, when you're not used to the rules like that, it's definitely instinctive to just keep walking and shopping like you always do, but I am sure some of it is also just blatant defiance because of course it is. You know, there's there are a lot of pressures and, and wackiness that drivers and shoppers for services like Uber Eats or Grubhub or Instacart are having to deal with that they've never had to deal with before, and I know that if I were them, my brain would would probably be pretty scrambled. Eventually, I got to the point where I felt personally comfortable enough to carefully go shopping myself after the first, I think it was after the first month or so. But yeah, I, I had a lot of, a lot of time to myself here at home. And 
I quickly found myself falling into a daily routine, as did many others, I'm sure, who felt like, I mean, you know, you got you have to fill, you have to find a way to fill the void of not going to work each day. You have to fill the void of suddenly not having structure anymore. And sometimes the, the, it, sometimes that can turn into a good thing. And sometimes it can turn into a bad thing. I think for the most part, I would say mine was a good thing. There were certainly bad aspects to it. I'm sure like bad habits that I formed, but I mean, I would you know, on the average day, I would wake up, I would grab my cup of coffee, then usually spend the next two hours or so uh, watching music theory videos on Facebook, or not Facebook, YouTube. Then I would transition to either composing music or learning music or learning how to play the piano. Um, I would do all this between eight to 12 hours a day. Uh, so basically it, it really was like I was treating it like my job, though the only, I think the main problem, one of the big problems that I had was that I didn't take a break on the weekends like you probably should. I just, it was, it was literally every day I was sticking to this schedule and I just, looking back, I'm like, that probably wasn't very healthy. Usually after that, I would move on to spend time with my wife or play video games or watch a movie or TV show or whatever. But I, I, I enjoyed the time that I had because I made, I made a lot of progress during those couple of months with my music. And I would say that I made even more progress in those couple of months than I have in the last 12 or so years. And it was great. It was, it was it's just weird because confusingly, I was also going through some fierce uh, anxiety issues. I was starting to have really bad insomnia, night terrors. Um, it would take me hours and hours to fall asleep. I also have heart palpitations and another problem where if I focus too much on my breathing, I suddenly feel like I can't breathe. I'm a mess. But it's just, it's so weird because 2020 has just been it's been such a bizarre experience because it has been this weird sort of amalgamation of highest highs and lowest lows. I mean, it's been a, it's been a bipolar kind of year. It's equally been one of the best years I've had and one of the worst I've had since 2016 when my mom died. And of course, other things happened that year. So yeah, weird, weird year. And of course, Things have only escalated and accelerated as we have drawn closer to the election, which has become such a dirty word in this day and age. This year has been or, or had seen a, a uh, tremendous spike in political polarization. I'm sure that you have seen it yourself. It's like it's like that the, the pandemic has been a catalyst that has put everybody on edge, priming us to move one step closer to crazy when things like George Floyd's murder happened, uh, and the deaths of other people of color, of course, that happened within this year, and the battle of face masks, and the stay-at-home mandates, and the shutdowns, protests, riots, fear of the election on both sides. The thing that we can all agree on is that everyone is so angry. Everyone is so angry right now. And uh, for my part, I believe that we are all angry. And I, I mean, I am too. I believe we are all angry because we're afraid. Every single one of us. I, I think we are all afraid right now. 
it, it really does remind me of how things went following the September 11th terrorist attacks, at least what I can remember. You know, we we had a, a naively subconscious, so for some of us it, it was conscious, belief that America was invincible. And that belief was hit very hard. It was It was kicked right in the teeth. And the fallout, the aftermath, was fear fear everywhere. I mean, I have also posited for a very long time that that is also the catalyst that really set the the wide and widening political polarization into play. I mean, I sure it's it's sort of always been happening, you know, statistics have shown that, but I I do think that 9/11 increased the speed at a uh, an exponential rate. And then the election of Donald Trump accelerated it even further than the pandemic, than the murder of George Floyd. And it's just like things keep happening that keep slamming the American foot down heavier on the gas as we it's it's like we're speeding toward the edge of a cliff. And, and the thing that has been making me especially angry is the American church's general response to all of this. Now, you know, I need to give a disclaimer that I tend to talk about, quote-unquote, the American church or American Christianity in very broad terms. Look, I, <laughs> I know that there are good people. I know that there are good Christians all over this country. I know that there are good churches practicing very real and good faith, very real self-denying Christ-like love. I know they exist. But there are plenty which aren't. And unfortunately, I think most of us can probably agree, most of the time it seems to be the ones right in the limelight. My, my point is I, I make these broad terms just for the sake of arguments because, at least to me anyway, it would be annoying if every time I say something like, the American church is, is doing this bad thing, I, I have to follow it up with. But not all Christians are doing that. You know, it's... It's something I run into a lot on social media when I write posts targeting the American church's faults, uh, on Twitter especially. My posts tend to get swarmed by Christians saying things like, you know, but not all of us are like that. Well, good. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Then stand up and call out the ones who are. Pick up a sign. Add your voice to the frustration. Or, if you don't feel like you're ready to do that, then step out of the way. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just, I'm just saying the, the not all blanks are like that argument trips up the greater point of the discussion. The protest. It trips up the protest of the problem. You know, I, I remember when this, this same thing happened with the, the hashtag MeToo movement once, once that started spreading and we had women sharing just awful, awful stories about what they had endured over the last, or over the years from men. We, we almost immediately saw the hashtag not all men starting to trend. You know, men were, were upset because they felt targeted, so they felt defensive. They felt like they had to declare their innocence, so to speak. But the thing is, the Me Too movement doesn't even declare that all men are wicked. 
Sure, you, you maybe have a handful of women who do, but I would submit that they likely have a very good reason, and probably more than one, why they feel that way. I'm not saying that they're right in feeling that way, but it's probably rooted in some horrific things that they likely experienced at the hands of men. But the movement as a whole was not condemning men as a whole. So there was no reason for those men to try to vindicate themselves. Again, if you're a man who is not like that, good. Stand with the women or get out of the way and let them expose the men who are guilty. And of course, you know, we also see this with the, the you know, the Black Lives Matter and the All Lives Matter thing. You probably knew I was going there. As, as any BLM proponent will tell you, Black Lives Matter does not mean that Black Lives Matter more than other lives. It does not mean Black Lives exclusively matter. It doesn't mean that. They know that all lives matter. The point of their argument is Black Lives Matter too. And yeah, I mean, you've had some people say that they know that, but they wish that's how they would frame it. But it's just, it's a technicality. The, the point the point is Black Lives Matter too because, and this is what they're trying to raise awareness of, because the way things have gone in American society for a very long time now, Black lives are treated like they don't matter as much as other lives. So yes, all lives matter is true. All lives do matter, but in this particular discussion, it's just a diversion tactic. At least that's what it comes across as, and it trips up the entire attempt to raise awareness to oppression. It's like, here's a, a hypothetical scenario. Imagine if things got really bad for Christianity in America, and I mean exclusively Christianity. And we found ourselves being oppressed, maybe even persecuted, and we started having protests to raise awareness that Christians are exclusively being oppressed by the system. But then, as we're protesting, let's just say a group of, of Muslim counter-protesters uh, shows up and starts chanting, all religions matter. I can bet that we wouldn't be very happy about that because Christianity is exclusively dealing with oppression. We, we agree, at least constitutionally, that all religions matter, but that's exactly what is making us angry because Christianity is not being treated like it matters as much as the others, again, in this, this hypothetical. That is what is going on with all of these topics when someone jumps in the way to say, but not all of us are like that, or all blanks matter. That was a very long rant, but my point is, I, I know that not, not all American Christianity is bad. But, for the sake of argument, I'm focusing on the parts that are, because that is the point of the discussion. And... Picking up with what I was saying, I have been very angry with the American church's response to the country, which has predominantly been, we're just slamming, helping to slam on the gas and speeding the country at a faster pace toward that cliff. I mean, this year in particular, like this, this is why it frustrates me so much. This year in particular could have been such a wonderful opportunity for the church to shine the light of Christ on the people around us. To, to mourn with those who mourn, to put the safety and well-being of others ahead of ours, to stand with those who are tired of fighting a losing battle or what feels like a losing battle against a corrupt system. And yet, it feels like 
at every turn, at seemingly every opportunity, the American church has done the exact opposite. We are still playing the same old game of focusing on ourselves, of prioritizing our advantages, even if it disadvantages others around us. That reminds me of a, a really great uh, Tim Keller quote I recently came across. Tim was explaining the original definition, the, the original Hebrew translation um, or idea behind the word righteousness when it appears in the Bible. And uh, the Hebrew meaning behind it has the idea that the righteous will disadvantage themselves to advantage their community. And on the other side, the wicked will disadvantage their community to advantage themselves. And what's also interesting is that that word, the Hebrew word for righteousness, which I don't have in front of me, I don't remember what it is, but it is apparently the same word uh, that is used for the word just when that word comes up in the Bible. So when it talks about God being a, a just God and a just judge, that is the idea that it has, that the righteous will disadvantage themselves to advantage their community, and the wicked will disadvantage their community to advantage themselves. I mean, we see this uh, nowhere more clearly than in Jesus, and the fact that, you know, as I say so many times, his his acts were self-denying. It was self-emptying. It was self-sacrificing. And, and even for God, God the Father's part, I mean, giving up his own son like that. It's, it is, a, you know, Jesus dying, Jesus taking on the sins of the world, Jesus being the exclusive one to fight against death. You know, these are all things that put him at a disadvantage, you know, especially, especially the death his death and, and his, his torture, they were things that put him at a disadvantage. They disadvantaged him and just the general persecution that he received, but they advantaged everyone. They advantaged his community. They advantaged Christendom. They advantaged the world. It, 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 that is the definition. And... You know, that latter part, the wicked will disadvantage their community to advantage themselves. I, I, I mean, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm seeing a whole lot of that part of the explanation and not so much the first part. As, as I've said before, and I've said this a lot all over the place, American Christianity has become so obsessed with America being a Christian nation that we pay very little attention to the, quote, orphans and widows, nationalism. You know, I I can't talk enough about how damaging it is, and that's what it is. It's become such an infectious disease in the American church. We, of course, we, we wouldn't admit that that's what we are. We wouldn't admit that we are nationalists, but I believe it is. I, I really, I, I believe that that's exactly what it is. When, when we become so hyper-focused on the idea of America being a Christian nation and we have to fight for it to be that. I mean, look no further than, than the whole God and country movement that swept through many evangelical churches predominantly in the last 20 to 30 years. It was around before that, but like it really began gaining ground within the last 30 years or so. I used to attend a, a Baptist church and we had a God and Country Day. That's what it was called. We had it every year. I think it was usually on the Sunday closest to Memorial Day. And they would go, the church would go all out. 
it would be adorned with American flags, big and small. It would have a, a sort of red, white, and blue color scheme to it. Things hanging from the ceiling and just posters and stuff about America and how beautiful it is. We would sing songs like, you know, This Land is My Land. The choir would sing all of the various military anthems and veterans from each branch would be encouraged to stand when their particular anthem is played. And the whole event would build to a crescendo of music and an explosion of confetti cannons behind the pulpit. And, you know, I didn't really realize how kind of strange it all was. I mean, to me, it felt normal. It felt like a normal part of church life. I, I just assumed that all quote-unquote good American churches practiced things like this. And it really wasn't until I, I was much older and introduced to Eastern Orthodoxy and really began to delve into ancient church history that I began to realize how kind of off the God and country model is. I mean, there's there's just something weird about it. I mean, look, I, am I saying that the church in America shouldn't have appreciation for our country? Am I... Am I saying the church in America shouldn't thank and respect and venerate veterans? No, of course not. But I think there's a time and a place for that sort of thing. And, and not only that, but a way to do it that, I don't know, just it, it doesn't come across as worship. Because that's, that's the way it does come across, whether intentional or not. Or, or the average church that I was in growing up, they had flags behind the pulpit, usually the Christian flag. And then right next to it, the American flag, as if they are on equal footing. And then on top of all that, in, in Sunday school, we would uh, we would recite three different pledges. I remember three different pledges. I don't know that I remember the words, but uh, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. We would pledge allegiance to the Bible, and then we would pledge allegiance to America. Why Why are we doing that? and specifically within a church. That just seems really weird to me. But I didn't know that it was weird until I started hearing that most other liberated countries think we are, we are kind of weird for doing that. Some of them even see it as, as kind of cultish, funnily enough. And I don't know that I'm going that far with it, but it, it just doesn't feel right to me, it feels like propping the United States of America up to the same level as Christianity, like it's the actual kingdom of God or something. That just doesn't sit well with me. And, you know, it's it's an example of a much bigger problem in the American church. We have, I believe, a very unhealthy relationship with our country. We are very jealous of it and zealous. And I'm not I'm just not sure that we're supposed to be. Again, I'm not saying we have to completely reject any form of, of respect for this country, but for heaven's sake, we need to regain perspective. <laughs> During my, my weekday uh, commute, I passed two different churches, both Baptist. And I, I've, you, you may have heard me tell this story before because I, I talk about it a lot because it, it just it disturbs me. Um, because there's something that I always notice about both of those churches. They are both these, you know, typical church, you know, pure white buildings with tall steeples like like your average church. But this is where it gets interesting. Neither one has any kind of Christian markings or symbols on them anywhere. 
nothing aside from the marquee board by the road, which may have a Bible verse on it, but more often than that, it has some kind of cheesy, you know, Christianese proverb or or dad joke style pun. You know, no crosses, no no images of Christ, no images of a Bible, nothing. But do you know what they do have? A humongous American flag. This is not a joke. Two different churches. Humongous American flag flowing brilliantly and gloriously in the wind from, from either a flagpole next to the church or, as in the case with one of them, from the top of the steeple itself. And every day when I pass that, I just think to myself, what a horrific, horrifically accurate analogy for the condition of the church in America. This could have been our year. And, and I say that not just in relation to the church. I think it could have been the year for Americans in general. I, I, the coronavirus could have been the thing to unite us. And yet even that, we found a way to politicize it and use it to divide ourselves from other people. And that's just sad. But specifically talking about the church right now, this could have been our year. But we have made it known as we have been doing time and time again, unmistakably, that we have no interest in changing our perspective. We have no interest in listening to the cries of those who are hurting, and we, unless they're, they're, they're Christians overseas, way over somewhere where you know, they're not within our playground, and then we'll talk all day and night about them, because they're not actually here where we can take care of them. That's a topic for another time. <laughs> We have we have no interest in actually loving our enemies, quote-unquote, and we have no interest in trying to help the country let up on the gas. And I have a very terrible feeling that, that this upcoming election is only going to cement that. If we have it once again, once again, just like in 2016, where 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, if we have that again, and he wins again because of that, this is going to affect the way people see us for decades to come, if not longer. And that that really frightens me. That really frightens me. Well, that was, that was a very long introduction, but we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, God help us, we're going to take a look at Christendom-related news of the week right after this. Welcome back. This is A Christian in America, and we are taking a painful, reluctant look into Christendom news from the last week. So, as is kind of the American church's thing, some controversy has been stirred up, and not in a good way. Uh, though, of course, many are seeing this as a good thing, because of course they are. Uh, the name Sean Foyt has been gaining some ground. If you haven't heard his name, then you are very likely trying to keep away from the news, uh, which I can't really fault you for, because he's kind of been all over the place lately. First off, 
before we actually get into the meat of what's going on, I figured I would talk about who exactly he, he is, give like a really brief summary of who he is. And for that, uh, at least first off, I'm going to turn to his personal about me section on his web website, uh, seanfoyt.com. So according to his own website, he, he describes himself as a missionary, artist, speaker, author, activist, and founder of multiple worldwide movements, which include uh, a, a movement called Burn 24-7, also uh, a movement called Light a Candle, and finally Hold the Line, a, a political activist movement seeking to rally the global church to engage in their civic duty to vote and stand up for the causes of righteousness and justice in the governmental arena. I haven't heard of any of those movements, but there you have it. He has produced, recorded, and released over 22 music albums, co-authored five books, created numerous teaching resources, developed an online school, and has ignited several global missional initiatives. He is married to his high school sweetheart, Kate, and his greatest accomplishment and joy in life is fathering his four children, Keturah, Malachi, Ezra, and Zion. Of course, they would have those names. His, uh, his Instagram bio, if you prefer, he uh, in it he describes himself as a, quote, Jesus follower, a missionary artist, author, humanitarian, and activist. Now, he he is relatively young. He's 37 years old and is, or at least was, the worship leader at the Bethel Megachurch, which I know very little about. I mean, usually when I hear the term megachurch, my first instinct is to get shivers of discomfort, but I don't know anything about that other than I believe that they are responsible for a lot of contemporary worship songs that we hear in all the smaller churches, kind of like Hillsong. Uh, he is known for being very political. He actually ran as a Republican candidate for California's third congressional district, though he did not win. And he has been mostly supportive of Donald Trump, and he was outspokenly against the president's impeachment. Uh, but there have been a few issues he opposed Trump and the general Republican Party on, such as uh, withdrawing troops from Syria. And from what I can tell, he was against the party's general stance on the whole refugees thing. He believed uh, we should welcome the refugees with open arms. He also is, and, and I don't necessarily mean this in offensive in an offensive way i he's just very generically hippie christian looking he's got very 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 long locks of luscious curly hair to be honest i'm a little envious of that and he's got some facial hair going uh he often wears plaid because of course and i wouldn't be surprised if he's the type who primarily goes around barefoot as he you know strums his little guitar so that's just a sort of bird's eye view of Sean Foyt, and uh, he's a he's an interesting fellow. But the main reason he's in the news lately is because he recently began a worship concert tour of the country, and it seems he has been primarily showing up in cities where protests are taking place. Which, you know, when I heard that, I was kind of like, okay, let's just see where this goes i guess i i just had a kind of bad feeling about it but i was hoping maybe i would be proved wrong um my primary question was is this really about worshiping jesus or 
is this a political stunt or is it a battle for fairness? You know, sort of harkening back to my previous episode where I talked about John MacArthur and Grace Community Church and how they're crying persecution because protesters are allowed to gather in the streets shoulder to shoulder, but churches are not allowed to gather, that, that sort of thing. And, and look, just so you know, I don't know what to do with any of that. I don't, I don't know what to do with the seeming double standards and uh, stuff that doesn't really make sense with what's allowed to open and what's not and all that. Well, it didn't take long for my questions to be answered. My questions about his, his motives. Uh, when Foyt arrived on the streets in Portland, Oregon, which has been, it, it has seen almost daily protests since the murder of George Floyd o over three months ago, they were initially blocked off and prevented from holding their concert because it was considered a violation of COVID-19 safety guidelines. Well, uh, Sean's response was very telling. He claimed that he and his concert members and attendees should just identify themselves as protesters, and then maybe they'll be allowed to have their concert. And he and his members and even some of the attendees started uh, venting on Twitter about how they were being persecuted. I, I saw some of their personal videos myself. They were, they were live streaming and talking about how the church was being persecuted and all this stuff. Um, so this was, more, this was more of the same stuff we've been seeing with MacArthur and other churches. It's it's about fairness over safety. And and when we feel like we're not getting what we think we are entitled to, we immediately cry persecution, you know, never mind the fact that Christians and religious organizations in general are not the only ones who are experiencing this, which to me that means it's I don't know. It's it's a discussion to be had about what what are the actual definitions of persecution? Because, I mean, sure, you know, I, I think I made a mistake in the previous episode where I, I, I zeroed in on, I think persecution is Christianity being zeroed in on, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought that I don't know that that's actually true because you do have countries where it's not just Christianity where they're actually being put to death. It's it's re other religions who are not part of the state religion. But I guess I would call that, I would say that definitely one of the, definitely one of the qualifiers for pers persecution is, is, you know, violence and and. Things like that, but it's it's difficult. It's it's difficult to define persecution. But I just I don't believe this is it. I really don't believe this is it. I don't know if this was before or after, but at some point they actually uh, Sean Foyt and his worship team did. Uh, they were able to set up their concert. You know their their motives just continued to be displayed. I mean, okay, I was thinking that if this is really genuine, then they'll try to find some way to join in with the protesters and tell them, you know, we're here, we're doing this to support you and your cry for help. That's what I was hoping for, but wasn't expecting. And I was, of course, right to not expect that. I'm going to read this article. Uh, this is, again, from Religion News Service, uh, from a person who, until recently, identified herself as an evangelical Christian. She was protesting within the BLM movement when Sean Foyt came into the city and held his concert. And she gives a uh, eyewitness account of what she saw and experienced. And it's 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 very ugly. 
Uh, now, you don't have to agree with all the conclusions that she personally arrives at. I'm just more interested in the details of the concert itself and the kind of mood and atmosphere it displayed. So this this article is titled, How a Sean Foyt Worship Service Convinced Me I Am No Longer an Evangelical. And it was written on September 23rd, a little little under a week ago or about a week ago now by a woman named D.L. Mayfield and she writes up until a few weeks ago I considered myself an evangelical I knew all the baggage that came with that word especially following the 2016 election of Donald Trump where 81 percent of self-identifying white evangelicals voted for him but I felt a responsibility to the word and to my people one can't simply wish or pretend away what they are, I thought. Even though I felt confused, heartbroken, and betrayed by the marriage of nationalism and Christianity I saw on full display in my community, that didn't make me a sudden outsider. I simply wasn't evangelical. I had been born one, a homeschooled pastor's kid who went to a Bible college to be a missionary, and I would remain one until I got kicked out, I joked with my friends. As a freelance writer who wrote par primarily for evangelical audiences, I thought maybe I had a unique opportunity to evangelize my own people. They were, after all, the ones who raised me to love God and read the Bible, to become a disciple of Jesus. Surely they might be open to seeing how their views on immigration, police brutality, war, unchecked capitalism, the prison industrial complex, and more might be at odds with the message of Jesus. I should have believed my community when they told me over and over again exactly who they are. I live in Portland, Oregon, which has been making national and global news for the Black Lives Matter protests going on for more than three months now. Along with my Tuesday night prayer ladies, I joined in with many others in the city to put our bodies on the line to demand a change in our racist policing system. I went as my whole Christian self, holding a sign that said, Mother Mary lost a son to state violence. I was tear gassed charged by officers in full riot gear and shot at with rubber bullets and flashbangs. While the violence of the police was horrible, my main takeaway from being involved in multiple protests was how much like church they felt, how we chanted and sang and moved our feet, how people looked out for each other with food and jokes and songs and medical care, how we were bonded together in our belief that another world was possible. Because of my experience at the protests, when I heard that a worship leader from Southern California was coming to Portland to hold a, quote, riots to revival concert downtown, I was immediately suspicious. The event organized by a church in Vancouver, Washington, across the river was being heavily promoted by charismatic and evangelical Christians as a chance to push back against the state laws forbidding Christians from gathering in church to sing during COVID-19. So there you go. I mean, they, they apparently weren't hiding it, hiding their intentions to begin with. I decided to attend, she continues, along with my husband and support my friend Beatrix, who was organizing a counter protest. My motivation was simple. I thought it was incredibly disrespectful to characterize the protests for Black Lives Matter as quote unquote riots and to hold this concert in the very space where people had been crying out for justice and being brutalized by the police just for doing that. We wanted to hold signs and identify ourselves as Christians while also not letting people forget about the Black Lives Matter protests that were continuing to go on. 
Just standing on the edge of the worshipping crowd was enough to draw the ire and attention of many folks. For almost two hours, I was constantly confronted, yelled at, live-streamed, prayed over, and told I was not a real Christian. For the record, I was simply holding a sign that had a Bible verse on it. I was not prepared for how much worse this would be than tear gas. I was not prepared for the pit in my stomach as I saw the thousands of Christians gathered without masks, triumphantly singing songs to God, hands in the air, and all eyes turned toward the worship leader on stage. The person leading the event, Sean Foyt, has a mass of curly blonde hair and is known for being opportunistic when it comes to marrying politics with worship leading. Foyt, a vocal Trump supporter and former congressional candidate, has been raising money to travel to spots in the United States where horrific deaths at the hands of police have taken place or where long-term protests in support of Black Lives Matter are going on. He sings happy songs about God being on his side. The speakers turned up to full volume in order to literally drown out the protesters cries for justice and that that really bothers me like a lot uh, she continues I knew almost every word to the songs the group was singing but I could not bring myself to sing along surrounded on all sides by people with arms raised high eyes closed joy and certainty shining on the faces of the true believers it hit me we read the same Bible and we all call ourselves Christians but we are not singing to the same God I could no longer pretend otherwise. I lost my religion that day in that group of worshipers. I lost the word evangelical. As I realized I was surrounded by people who truly believed they were proclaiming the good news. Yet on the edges of their concert, young people of color were begging for them to listen to their grief instead of shouting over it. I can no longer call myself an evangelical because what defines a white evangelical in the United States has become a longing for an authoritarian state where Christianity is prioritized and privileged. This kind of Christian nationalism is entirely at odds with the gospel of Jesus, and I absolutely agree with that statement. She continues, who told us right from the beginning that he was going to be the good news to the poor, the imprisoned, the sick, and the, and the oppressed, not the impressed, well, I'm sure those two and that he would be bad news for people who longed to clutch at power and safety and affluence at the expense of their neighbor. You remember this This is getting into the what I talked about earlier in the first segment with the, the definition of righteousness and disadvantaging yourself to advantage your community. I think the long-term consequences, she continues, of white evangelicals longing to secure their own power and influence will ultimately backfire spectacularly. We are already seeing people leaving the church in droves, and I expect that number to multiply. It's, uh, it's very interesting, actually. I've been doing some research into this myself with people leaving, leaving the evangelical churches, especially younger people, and the reasons are very... They're, they're, they seem different, but they all tend to to have some some basic core to them um which is kind of a rejection of you know i jokingly said this on facebook recently a, a rejection of the the quote-unquote father ted talk or or pastor ted talk method of churches where the focus is on the sermon and the sermon itself um most of the time is is a common is a political commentary at least that's that's what my experience has been in 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 many evangelical churches and there is a rejection of that now because well for obvious reasons people don't want to it's just it's not it's not sustainable 
that type of doing church where the, the, the sermon is the focal point. It is the focus around which everything else revolves. It just, it is not sustainable, especially not in this climate. So what's happening is, interestingly enough, uh, younger generations aren't just leaving the churches. They're specifically leaving evangelical churches and they are migrating. Most of them, a lot of them are migrating to older, historical, more liturgical churches like Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and the Anglican Church. These churches where the they're very ritualistic, which that's become such a bad word in, in much of American Christendom, and I disagree that it's a bad word. Uh, they're very ritualistic, ritual-oriented, and more than that, in most of these historical churches, the sermon, otherwise known as the homily, it's not the focus of the Sunday service. What is this? the focus is worship. It's the worship of God. It's the worship of the Holy Trinity. It is the Eucharist or the communion and, and drinking and eating together. That is the focus. And is specifically speaking for orthodoxy, um, you know, the, the focus, the entire liturgy it, it revolves around communion. It, it, it revolves around the Eucharist. And then the homily or the sermon is usually only about 10 or 15 minutes long because it's not the main event. So it's it's interesting seeing this happening. And I was talking about how, you know, I, I hear evangelical churches uh, or evangelical Christians lamenting that they're losing the younger kids. But then when I turn around and talk to my Orthodox Christian friends, they are rejoicing because, hey, we have an influx of, of younger people coming to our churches for some reason. And it's just, it's very, it's very interesting seeing that. So I, I honestly, I'm at a position now where I, I agree that, or I'm starting to believe that if the evangelical church does not do something soon to change the way it does things, and I don't mean that it has to, it has to let go of all of its convictions and stuff like that. That's not what I mean. But if it changes, if it does not change its structure to be something more grounded, then I believe the, I believe it's going to die away. Um, at the very least, it's going to turn into a minority church, whereas um, places like black churches, uh, which includes black Protestant churches and the more liturgical churches, those are going to be the majority. I mean, some of them already are in certain parts of, of the world and even here. I think the evangelical church is a it's a dying flame right now. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't do something to change that, but... Like I said in the in the first segment, it's 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 being widely overrun and driven by nationalism. It doesn't mean that all evangelicals are nationalists, but by and large, it's being driven by people in higher positions who are nationalistic. And it's going to drive the, the entire movement off the side of a cliff if they don't do something very soon. Continuing with the article, she says, Now I routinely have evangelicals both in person and online question the state of my salvation because I support the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't know what to call myself anymore, but that's okay. Whatever comes next, it won't be something I need to create, uh, create out of my bare hands, something I need to lead or something to reform. I am still a Christian. I still have hope for God's dream of the world coming true in small ways, even in my own lifetime. But this hope comes not from my fellow evangelicals singing their loud songs to a small god they hope to control. 
No, it is showing up in all the unexpected places Jesus always told us to look and finding God already at work there in so many places and in so many ways. So again, you don't have to agree with all of the conclusions that she she comes to. I'm not sure how I feel about some of the things, but by and large, this gives us important information on two things. One is just purely in relation to this little concert thing. It's just, it's more, it's just more Christian mess. It's more unnecessary Christian mess and complaining about fairness and calling it persecution, which is just, as I have established, the other thing is that it gives you a good look into what's going on in the minds of a lot of young people and what they are seeing in the average evangelical and evangelical church and what is it that is driving them away from the church this is what's happening this is what's happening. These are the conclusions she is coming to. These are the perceptions that she is having based on how we are acting. And and we can't just dismiss this and say, well, you know, Jesus promised that we would we would face hardships and that people would mock us for doing the right thing. That's I cannot express how how destructive that view is when you when you hold to it no matter what happens and you don't at any point take some time to critically examine whether or not you're being quote-unquote persecuted for the right reasons or the wrong ones are you driving people away are people being driven away by you for the right reasons or the wrong ones and i would submit no surprise here but i would submit that a lot of what we're seeing is people are being driven away by the wrong reasons if there is antagonism toward Christianity, it is not because of anything. I don't think in most cases in America, it's not because of anything good we're doing. It's not because we're so Christ-like that people are coming after us. You know, I, I feel very, I feel very strongly and very personally convicted that the antagonism that American Christianity is facing is... It's leading to self-manufactured persecution, meaning it's it's stuff that we have brought on ourselves. Does this mean that there isn't any true persecution going on anywhere in the American church? No, that's, that's not what I mean by that. But I think that a lot of these quote-unquote louder incidents that we're seeing are sort of warranted pushback based on how we have just dropped the ball in American Christendom. <sighs> So, uh, like I did last time, within this news segment, we're going to switch it over to uh, the redundantly titled Good Gospel News section, where I do some digging to find, you know, some good stories in the news amidst all the crap. Uh, though this is kind of cheating because it's an older story, something that happened last year, but I literally just heard about it and it just really made my day, though admittedly, it does have a bit of a downside to it, which I'll examine just a little bit, but by and large, it's it's a really good thing. Um, this is an article that was shared on a couple of different platforms at the time, but this particular version is coming from the official United Methodist Churches of Indiana website, and the title is Indiana Church Eliminates $5.9 Million of Medical Debt. Oh, I was wrong. It wasn't from last year. It was actually very early this year. Uh, this was written on February 19th, 2020. 
around the U.S., churches are responding to the concerning rise in unpaid medical debt, and some United Methodist churches in Indiana are joining this trend. St. Andrew United Methodist Church in West Lafayette recently partnered with RIP Medical Debt, a nonprofit organization that purchases oppressive medical debt owed by individuals living in or near the poverty line and are unable to pay it off. In the coming days, 4,220 recipients in Carroll, Clinton, Montgomery, White, and Tippecanoe counties. Tippecanoe. Is that really? Is that really? Is that like a Native American word, or is it literally just tip a canoe? Uh, they will be receiving a letter. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm so distracted by that now. Uh, they will receive a letter that their debt, a combined total of $5,990,435.42. Dick Nelson, a faithful member of the church, encouraged the congregation to join the debt elimination effort following a discussion during his Christian Issues Sunday School class, which brought about the issue of overwhelming medical debts owed by families in the surrounding community. On his 90th birthday, he pledged money towards eliminating the debt and invited the church to form a committee to join him in this effort. Soon thereafter, the church raised the minimum requirement to begin the debt elimination process. Now, this is where it gets really, really weird and kind of just it shows you how messed up the American medical system is. The organization wanted a minimum of $15,000, he said. But how does $15,000 equate to almost $6 million? Dick said that when a person or family cannot afford to pay a hospital bill, that debt is then sent to a debt collection agency. Unpaid debts remain in the system for a long period of time untouched. Eventually, the bill is written off and there's just this outstanding amount of money that by now has been reduced considerably to typically $1 out of $100. The church has been receiving letters from recipients across the state sharing their appreciation for this unexpected gift. One letter brought tears to Dick's eyes as he read it was from a couple in Connecticut who had received medical aid at an Indiana hospital. The wife had given birth to their daughter in critical condition. The baby suffered from a brain aneurysm and consequently endured severe disabilities. In the letter, the couple wrote, Our daughter was only given a few weeks to live, but this coming April she turns 14. We are completely astonished and grateful that your congregation would do such an amazing goodwill toward us. We had no idea that the debt was even still outstanding as it was from 2006. They can Continued, we are still in a little bit of shock, but we truly appreciate everything you've done gratefully. Once again, thank you very much. The church is drafting a letter as a response to beneficiaries who contact them to learn more about the good deed. It contains the following. By using our resources to pay off unpaid medical debt in our community and beyond, we are living into our mission statement of St. Andrew UMC, an open community growing in the ways of Jesus, sent out daily to share the healing love of God and partnering with RIP enables us to make a much larger impact than assisting individuals alone. The identities of the beneficiaries of our donations to RIP Medical Debt are unknown to us. RIP does all the processing in support of its goal and abolishing accumulated debt for families nationwide. And I just, I think that's, I think that's absolutely, that is absolutely amazing. And that, that is the church that I know and love. And that is, that is what I want to see more of. Now, the downside, uh, as the article very briefly went into, is why... <laughs> Why are our parties who are not being the who are not the party being charged able to purchase the debt 
for such a small amount. I mean, $15,000 out of almost 6 million is what, like 0.25% of the total or something like that, that the, the American medical system is just so unbelievably broken. It is, it's, it's, it's not even a joke. So Lord willing, we can do something about that. And until that time, I am really happy to see churches and Christians stepping up to the plate and being willing to sort of be the change that I believe Christ said that we should be. I mean, this is these Christians aren't focusing all their time and effort in, in making their church bigger or bringing more people into their church or fighting their local government and trying to make it a Christian government or Christian state or Christian town, whatever. They're not trying to advantage themselves. You know, they are they are disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of the community. And that is what we need more of that wraps up our news segment we're going to go to another break and when we come back when we come back i'm going to be introducing a new and very quick segment on a christian in america all right welcome back this is a new recommendations segment where I very quickly give a recommendation of some media product that I'm really getting a lot out of, whether it be a book or a movie, TV show, podcast, whatever. Uh, I'm going to do my best to stick with one recommendation at a time, but it's going to be difficult because I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been reading, watching, and listening to a lot of stuff. So many great things lately, but for this episode, I want to focus on a podcast, actually, that I have really been enjoying. I don't necessarily always agree with the Christian views of the person who's running the show, but that's that's fine. I mean, it's still a very informative and good podcast, and it's also a relatively new. It's rather catchy alliterative title is the Protestants and Politics Podcast, uh, and it's hosted by a gentleman named Nap Nasworth. Uh, now, Nap, which is N A P P, in addition to having an interesting and similarly alliterative name that Stanley would be proud of, he's an interesting person in general. He has a history as a political science professor at the University of Florida. He is a lecturer, and probably one of the most infamous aspects of his portfolio is that he was, up until recently, a journalist, editor, and reporter for the Christian Post. This may all sound familiar because Knapp found himself in headlines all over the country back in December 2019 when he left the Christian Post over uh, disagreements with other staff on our current president, Donald Trump. The Christian Post, or otherwise known as CP, at least at one time it had a more nuanced and even negative, often negative view of Trump. Uh, Trump. Trump back before he was selected as as the Republican presidential candidate. But after he won, specifically after he won election in 2016, things started to change over the next couple of years. Uh, the CP was comprised of Christians with different views of Trump, and Nap Nasworth in particular was outspokenly critical of the president. For uh, for many years, he was responsible for writing critical, more critical editorials on the president to balance out articles that were written by pro-Trump staff members. But unfortunately, Knapp found the climate of the workplace becoming increasingly unwelcoming to 
his criticism of Donald Trump. From what I can gather, there was an in-house clash that came to a head in December 2019. I believe it was when Christian Post determined it was going to officially and fully support and back President Trump, meaning Knapp's more critical views would be out of place and even unwelcome. I've been trying to find information about this. I don't even know that Knapp was arguing that it should be against Trump as much as I think that what he wanted was for it to keep to the nuanced position that it had, where sometimes it will talk about the good that Trump does, sometimes it will talk about the bad, but that it shouldn't really take a firm position uh, for or against him. I think that's what Knapp was arguing for, but most of the staff members just said, and, and, and the CEO and, and all of that, all of them basically said, no, we, we need to, we need to unite under this president and we need to show him our support by fully backing him. So when it came to this point where they were arguing and neither was willing to budge on their position, Knapp, at least to me, took the only logical course of action, which was to leave the Christian Post. Uh, now, over the last few months, he has primarily been active on Twitter, uh, using it as a platform to voice his criticism of Trump, as well as the Christian right or moral majority, which that's definitely a fun topic that I'd like to delve into in the future. The Christian right and its roots in Southern fundamentalism. Uh, from what I can tell, Knapp still refers to himself as a conservative, but I think he's not sure about whether or not he's still a Republican, which is something that I've heard a lot of from a lot of conservatives. He is also a devout Protestant Christian, so that brings us to his new podcast, which started about a month or so ago. Protestants and Politics, as the name would suggest, involves Knapp examining, as he puts it, uh, the intersection of faith and politics and where it does well and where it doesn't. <laughs> uh, primarily, the podcast is interview-centric, which I think is really interesting. He uses it less as a platform to talk about his personal opinions and more as a platform to bring in people that he asks a lot of questions. Uh, he's already had several prominent and up-and-coming Christian authors and speakers and professors and others on his show to talk about anything from the current state of affairs, uh, America's Christian history, analyses of President Trump's 2016 election, and so on. As of this recording, he actually just released a really informative episode in which he interviews a, a man named Andrew Whitehead, who is the, let me look at my notes, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Association of Religion Data Archives, otherwise known as ARDA, which I have to wonder if that's a little Tolkien reference there. And that is located at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at Indiana University. Hey, there's Indiana coming into our to the podcast again. In his interview with Whitehead, uh, Whitehead gives a sort of bird's eye view of the different types of American Christian voters and exactly what elements have to be in play for these particular types to vote and support someone like Donald Trump. And they discuss Christian nationalism and just very fascinating. It's a very fascinating interview. So again, that's the Protestants in Politics podcast hosted by Nap Nasworth, and you can find it on Spotify and other uh, podcast streaming services, as well as Nap's website, which is napnasworth.com slash podcast. And that is N-A-P-P-N-A-Z-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash podcast. 
or you can just Google Protestants and Politics Podcast. I will also put a link to it in this episode's description. So check it out. And welcome back to A Christian in America, and we are going to be discussing another hot-button issue. The previous episode, I talked a bit about Christian involvement in social justice, and this week I'm talking about abortion. So, <laughs> uh, specifically, I want to focus on the question of voting for particular parties, uh, in, in relation to the question of abortion. Um, and you know, I, 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 I get it. I get that this, this just isn't going to work for a lot of pro-life advocates. And I'm, I'm just putting that, that, that out there at the outset. I, I get that. I know it just, it's not going to work for everybody, but as I always try to make a point of saying, I'm not really setting out to to convince anyone to change their minds about anything, especially not on a topic like this. It's almost impossible to change someone's mind one way or the other, especially on this topic, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. So I just really don't even try. If, however, if you are like me when it comes to politics and you have many questions and you feel like you just can't vote Republican this year in particular, but you also don't want to vote third party, but you're pro-life and the narrative within the average Christian circle is that you must never, you can never, never, ever, ever commit the unpardonable sin, which is, of course, voting Democrat, because they are murderous worshipers of Baal, after all, it says so right in the scripture. If, never mind the fact that the Republican Party also has blood on its hands, but we'll get into that in a future episodes. If that is you, if that describes you, then maybe you will be able to get something out of this. If you haven't already come to these conclusions yourself, then I will be talking about in this episode. As you may have picked up uh, from what I just said, as well as the introduction episode, if you listened to it, or even the opening narration of this podcast, while I used to be very much in the camp that said one couldn't be a Democrat and be a true Christian, I am no longer under that belief if you didn't pick that up. 2016 was the first ever year that I voted Democrat. I, I did vote for Hillary, albeit while pinching my nose, uh, but I did it, and because I, like many other people, was very very, I did it because I was very concerned about the consequences of a Trump presidency concerns, which at least for me have been validated, but again, another topic for another time. Uh, and in November, a little, which is a little over a month away as of this recording. Anyway, I intend to vote for Joe Biden again, while pinching my nose. I mean, I make no, I just talked about this on Facebook. I, I make no attempt to paint him as some wonderful and competent person and leader because I just, I don't really like Biden and I never have. I still don't know why President Obama selected him as his VP, although in some ways it was kind of worth it for some of the funny videos that the relationship yielded. One of my favorites is the, uh, uh, I think it's called Retirement Plans video that they filmed. You can find it on YouTube and it's, uh, they premiered it at the White House Correspondence Dinner and it's just, it's really funny. Also, there's been plenty of Biden-related skits on SNL, so... 
he did yield some funny material, but yeah, I've 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 never really been able to understand him. I just I feel like I I just I feel like he is an out of touch weird old man and I legitimately question his ability to make his own decisions and stand up for them as he has sort of a history of being more of a yes man maybe that's why Obama chose him I don't know so yeah I I have no real admiration for the guy but at the end of the day even with all the problems and quirks I see in him I still think he's better than who we've got now the thing is though if if I'm pro-life as I've established in previous episodes how do I reconcile that with voting for a party that is outspokenly pro-choice? Well, for me, it had to do with years of thinking and quite a lot of research into exactly what is going on with the subject. I, I needed to find answers to questions such as what are the current rates of abortion, if they are going up, why, if they're going down, why... Uh, in the case of the, la uh, the latter, what method of bringing the rates down has been the most effective? Is overturning Roe v. Wade actually a good idea? Would outlawing abortion actually be effective? These are many questions I had that I needed to find the answers to. And in 2016, I did not really have the answers to these questions, but I did have suspicions based on the little bit that I had already researched. And I acted based on those suspicions. I know maybe not the best way of doing it, but my my suspicions were that specifically when it came to the office of president, it didn't matter as much. Uh, I based this on the fact that, you know, since Roe v. Wade, we have had professing pro-life Republican presidents in the Oval Office, and yet abortion is still a thing. It's, it's never gone away. If it really was up to the president, why wouldn't a pro-life commander-in-chief just write an executive order or something and ban abortions? I mean, there's probably rules to prevent that, but as we have seen, certain presidents don't really care about those rules when it comes to executive orders. Clearly, it wasn't that simple, though. Uh, my suspicion was that, in actuality, the president could do very little in his or her own power on this particular issue. Uh, my suspicion was that it was less the presidency and more all of the uh, smaller offices. That's not really a good term for it, but I think you know what I mean. Beneath the president, that's where the quote-unquote battle if you will, mattered. I didn't do a whole lot of digging right then. Instead, I mainly talked to different people, mostly spiritual giants in my life, who I knew would actually view the situation in a more nuanced way if asked, instead of just black and white, you know, it is this way, it is that way. Uh, I was given some interesting statistics that seemed to corroborate with my suspicions. So seeing as it was election day, I went out and voted for Hillary based on those suspicions and assumptions and the early information I was given. Now, after, <laughs> after Donald Trump won, my first thought was, well, I'm going to be faced with this dilemma all over again in 2020. So I began doing research off and on over the next few years, I, I looked at CDC, uh, CDC statistics, uh, I read pro-life statistics, I read opinion pieces, but something else I did, something that that was incredibly important, and I, I already uh, briefly alluded to this earlier, but something else I did was actually talk to proponents and ask them 
what it is that they actually believe. I, I had a lot of very interesting conversations with, with some liberals on the topic. And that's really, that's really when I started to learn some very interesting things. Uh, I learned about how pro, uh, pro-life advocates are viewed by pro-choice proponents. I learned about some of the incorrect assumptions I held about how pro-choice proponents view abortion, uh, such as there's this, at least in my circles, there was this narrative, uh, about how uh, uh, pro-choicers basically use abortion as casually as birth control, which is just simply not true. Also, there's a reason why they prefer, uh, uh, or they refer to themselves as pro-choice and not pro-abortion, because most reasonable liberals are not pro-abortion. Most of them believe it's a complicated and a messy business, and while they don't think it should be explicitly outlawed, most of them are actually interested in rendering it useless or unneeded. Now, even after all those discussions, I still had some personal disagreements with their positions, particularly when it comes to the question of, you know, when does life begin or at what point is it a human? On religious and philosophical grounds, I am at odds with the average pro-choice liberal, but even so, it was really important to me, really important to actually take the time to sit down and talk with these people instead of just, you know, sitting in my own echo chamber, listening to what people in my chamber think the people on the outside believe. Instead instead of doing that, I went and asked the people on the quote-unquote outside themselves what they believe, and I cannot overstate how important that is. Now, I touched on this, if you may recall, if you've, if you've been listening since the per, uh, premiere of this podcast, I touched on this in the introduction episode, the idea of finding out what the quote-unquote enemy believes by, by reading assessments written by people from within your own camp. Or, like in the case I'd brought up uh, with Greg uh, Kokel from Stand to Reason, hearing another Christian claim that the Gospels encourage Christian involvement in social justice, but instead of Greg asking that particular Christian and how they came to that conclusion, he went and just read the Gospels for himself to see if he could find anything, as if somehow magically he could read the Scriptures objectively and unfiltered. And of course, no surprise, he came away believing what he already believed, which was that the Gospels do not encourage Christian involvement in social justice. It's just, it's, it's not a fair trial. It's not a fair assessment. I remember another situation, and I think this probably happens in a lot of Christian homes, especially here in America. Uh, A dear Christian friend of mine was very young when she first started learning about the Harry Potter series, which that uh, has become a whole new controversy these days, but for different reasons. Uh, Maybe I'll do a show about that. Uh, But anyway, somebody from, I think it was somebody from the school loaned her one of the Harry Potter books, and she brought the book home, and if I remember correctly, she left it somewhere next to her bed in plain sight or something like that. Well, her father at one point comes comes into the room, sees the book, and of course, because Harry Potter was at one time very controversial within evangelical households, he had some concerns. Now, 
just like I said with Greg Kukul, it is to his credit that he determined to do some research and not just dismiss it right off the bat. But again, just like with Greg, where he erred is he went out and bought a book from a Christian bookstore that specifically revolved around, quote unquote, exposing the book series as evil. In other words, it was not an objective assessment of Harry Potter. This this man went out and bought a book that fit with an opinion that he already had. He bought a book that specifically aligned and confirmed his views. There was no challenge in it whatsoever. And of course, he immediately told his daughter to get rid of the, the Harry Potter book. Just again, it's so important that we learn to ask questions and ask the people we think we disagree with. Don't just talk with people or buy books with assessments that just fit within your own echo chamber. This, this does nothing to help you understand. This does nothing to challenge you. This does nothing to help you grow. All it does is, is further shelter you, and in most cases, it just continues to promote and strengthen the us-versus-them mentality that so many American Christians have, and that is, that is uh, as I've been finding out, that is very much rooted in Southern fundamentalism. Again, another, another topic for another episode. But dialoguing is just so incredibly important, especially with people you disagree with. Seek to understand them truly. Don't just don't just do the thing where you argue with them, but when they talk back to you, you're not even listening, but rather focusing on formulating your own response. And I mean, I'm guilty of doing that myself. I, I do that a lot. No, we we have to engage with intent to learn. We have to engage with intent to understand. It doesn't mean we have to agree. It doesn't mean we compromise our convictions. I just saw this uh, in action the other day, actually, and, and it was it was really such a breath of fresh air. My wife, as I've mentioned before, is is more on the left side of the political spectrum. She considers herself uh, pro-choice, at least to a point, and she got into a debate with a dear friend of mine on Facebook who is pro-life. Uh, it kind of started out with a lot of tension, as it often does, but... To everyone's credit, they they remembered to take a, take a few moments to just breathe, breathe and engage with intent to learn. And they had a very interesting and enlightening conversation while also keeping it civil. And I know I certainly learned some new things. And even my wife said it was it was refreshing. And she has you know she has her own story. She has her own reasons why she might have a strong knee jerk reaction to a pro life advocate. She's she has a long history with this sort of thing, which you know I won't go into right now uh, as to why she feels the way that she feels. So it's it's really important to exercise patience with people, especially when there is a strong knee-jerk reaction, because chances are there's a very good reason behind that initial reaction. And if you really care about the topic, then you'll slow down, breathe, and try to work past that point. Now, nobody walked away from this uh, discussion having their opinions changed, I don't think. But I'd like to think that everyone walked away maybe understanding more than they had going into the debate. And I, I think that's I think that's the key. That's important. Again, that's a that's a rabbit trail. But what I was what I was saying was I was I was researching, I was looking at statistics, I was talking with pro life and pro choice people, and I learned some very interesting things. 
Uh, actually, it's kind of funny because after I learned what I learned and spent so much time doing it, an article was recently published that basically collects and summarizes all the information it had taken me so long to learn. There's something very ironic about that, and that's actually what I want to do for the remainder of this episode. I want to read an article from a very, very point, or, or with a very, very poignant title uh, that reads, Do Pro-Lifers Who Reject Trump Have quote-unquote, blood on their hands. Now, this is written from a uh, an outspokenly pro-life conservative whom I have been following closely for a little while now. His, his name is David French. He is an attorney. He's a political commentator. He's an author. He just uh, released a book that I've been working through. It's a difficult read, but it's very, very timely called Divided We Fall. Um, now, kind of like Nap Nasworth, whom I mentioned in the recommendations segment, he is a conservative but no longer considers himself to be a Republican because he feels like the party has really strayed far from what he believes it once was. So it will probably come as no surprise that he is not a Trump supporter, but in fact wholeheartedly rejects Trump. Uh, French is the, he, uh, he co-created a news media organization called The Dispatch, which I highly recommend. It's, it's a really fascinating source for mostly political news. It is, it's the number one source I go to when I'm interested in news specifically from a conservative perspective, as I'm not a Fox News fan. Um, they release news articles every day. Some of them are behind a paywall, but they do have a free podcast, which I really enjoy listening to. Uh, they release two new episodes every week, so there's an extra recommendation on top of my other recommendations. But I want to read this article by David French because, as I said, it just really succinctly puts together the reasons behind the conclusions I have come to in recent years of voting Democrat with a clear conscience despite being pro-life. Uh, again, this article is titled, Do Pro-Lifers Who Reject Trump Have Blood on Their Hands? And it reads, actually, first I should say this was written, uh, again, by David French on August 23rd, but it reads... I don't often post the trolling, angry t tweets that I receive on a daily basis, but I thought I'd make an exception to launch a longer, important discussion that we simply don't see enough in American Christianity. How do politics impact abortion rates in the United States? It has been almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade was decided. What have we learned? Or, let's put it another way, since I'm not voting for Donald Trump in 2020, is this tweeter correct? Will I have the blood of dead, unborn children on my hands? And he's got a, a quote from someone who, was, who sent a tweet to him on the Twitters. This person is called The Other Jack, and they say... To David French, you are an antichrist that bears false witness daily, and should your new quote-unquote side somehow win, referring to Democrats, you will have the blood of dead, unborn children on your hands when you face judgment. Uh, French continues, I'm going to give a short answer to this question and a long answer. The short answer is no to the question of, do we have blood on our hands? The long answer, which is going to dive deep into legal, political, and cultural realities of the abortion debate, isn't likely to please any partisans, so buckle up. Decades of data and decades of legal, political, and cultural development have combined to teach us a few simple realities about abortion in the United States. 
Before I walk through the points, I want to share with you two key pieces of data. The first is a chart showing the American abortion rate since Roe. It's compiled by the Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute. And while the data isn't perfect, it's perhaps the best data we have. Uh, and it's a graph. You'll be able to get this, this article. I will, I will link it in the episode description. Um, so you'll want to look it up because there is a graph from the Guttmacher Institute uh, called the U.S. abortion rate reached a his historic low in 2017. And it, it's it's a graph based on number of abortions per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. And what's interesting is that according to this graph, abortions, as of 2017 at least, uh, they are lower than they were during the time of Roe versus Wade, which that's we don't hear anybody talk about that. Um, so I definitely encourage you to check out the the graph in the article because it's very it's very interesting. Uh, French continues, I've posted this before and a number of commenters have responded with two immediate questions. Does this account for medication abortions? Also, isn't this decrease merely an artifact of declining American birth rates? After all, if there are fewer pregnancies per women, then it stands to reason there will be fewer abortions. The first response is easy. Gunmacher data takes into account medication abortions and notes that the overall rate is declining in spite of an increase in medication abortions. But what about America's quote-unquote declining birth rate? That response is also easy. Yes, America's birth rate has declined, but at nothing like the rate of decline in the abortion rate since 1980. At the same time, we also have data not just about the abortion rate, but also about the abortion ratio, the number of abortions per 1,000 pregnancies that end either an abortion or live birth. And that abortion ratio is in steep decline as well. Guttmacher reports a 13% decline in that ratio between 2011 and 2017. This is, this is where it gets really interesting. A period that represents the last five years of whose presidency? Obama's and the first year of the Trump administration. Let's walk through politics, law, and culture. So he goes to his first point, which was presidents don't really matter. Let's begin with a pop quiz. Who is the most pro-life president in the modern history of the United States? A surprising number of contemporary Republicans have a quick answer. Donald Trump. Not only is the answer wrong, other presidents have passed more substantial pro-life policies, the fact that any person could credibly think that's the case is symbolic of historic presidential irrelevance. For example, Trump is rightly praised for enacting new Title X regulations that required physical and financial separation of Title X projects from abortion-related activities. This decision has caused Planned Parenthood to withdraw from the Title X program, but the Trump rule is less strict than Title X rules promulgated under the Reagan administration. Moreover, Trump has hardly quote-unquote defunded Planned Parenthood. In fact, Planned Parenthood received record-high taxpayer funding in 2019, performed a record-high number of abortions, and its affiliates received $80 million in coronavirus bailouts earlier this year. Unlike George W. Bush, who signed into law a born-alive infant protection bill and a partial birth abortion ban, Trump has not signed a single significant piece of pro-life legislation. But even Bush's historic legislation merely nibbled at the edges of the abortion challenge. It's exceedingly rare for babies to be born alive after botched abortions, and partial birth abortion was bar barbaric but thankfully infrequent. Regardless of the tweaks to the law, regardless of the bully pulpit, Look back again at the numbers above. The abortion rate declines. The abortion ratio declines. 
They declined during pro-life and pro-choice presidency. They declined when George W. Bush was president, and they declined when Barack Obama was president. If the decades-long trend holds, they'll decline no matter who wins in November. But astute readers will note I haven't mentioned perhaps the president's primary theoretical influence on abortion. Judicial nominations. Have presidents or the justices they've appointed meaningfully moved the needle on abortion law since Roe? No, they have not. Let's take a closer look. Uh, number two, Supreme Court justices are instruments of stability in abortion law. How many of the current Supreme Court justices have recently and unequivocally stated that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood uh, versus Casey, the two cases securing a constitutional right to an abortion, are bad law? Exactly one out of nine. It's George H.W. Bush appointee Clarence Thomas. The rest just voted to apply some variant of the Casey undue burden standard to a Louisiana statute requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. The court struck down the Louisiana law by a complicated 4 to 1 to 4 vote. But one thing was clear, only Justice Thomas cast the abortion right in doubt, and no one else joined in his dissent. In fact, abortion jurisprudence has been relatively stable and intact since 1992. To be fair, the state of Louisiana did not ask the court to overturn Roe, but Thomas stated his opinion. Any justice could have joined him. They chose not to. CNN later reported that Trump's most recent Supreme Court appointee, Brett Kavanaugh, had urged the justices to sidestep the merits of the case entirely. Now, you might object that previous presidents were rhinos, or Republicans in name only. They didn't have the guts to pick good justices. They wouldn't fight like Trump does to put his man or woman on the court. But here again, the historical record is not their friend. Even though previous justices were subject to filibusters, Republican presidents did, in reality, succeed in putting on the court justice after justice who had expressed opposition to Roe, including some of the most infamous abortion quote-unquote squishes in modern Supreme Court history. As Carrie Severino recently noted, even Justices David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Sandra Day O'Connor critiqued Roe before they joined the court. Souter filed a brief that called abortion, quote-unquote, the killing of unborn children. Kennedy once called Roe the, quote, Dred Scott of our time. O'Connor wrote that the court's abortion decisions, quote, have already worked a major distortion in the court's constitutional jurisprudence. Each of those justices joined the majority in Casey to preserve the right to an abortion. For almost three decades, the Supreme Court lesson has been clear. Put not your trust in judges to rescue America from the moral stain of abortion. Three, state legislatures are more effective than Congress. One of the most frustrating aspects of modern right-wing political debate has been the claim that cons the conservative movement didn't quote-unquote win before Trump. A conservative movement that was raised from the ground up to celebrate federalism ended up disregarding immense and substantive gains in state governments. For millions of populists, all that really mattered was the presidency. For many reasons, including the state of abortion law, this is a profound mistake. 
In reality, the astonishing advance of the conservative movement in American states during the Obama administration yielded more concrete pro-life gains than anything the Trump administration has yet accomplished. In fact, given this reality, French continues, it's not too much to say that losing or winning state elections has proven to be more directly material to the law of abortion than 40 years of federal electoral contests. To understand the extent of state regulation, this piece compiles the, uh, the sheer totals of state laws that regulate public funding, gestational requirements, waiting periods, parental involvement, physician involvement, and a host of other regulations and restrictions. But given the extent of state legislation, doesn't this make the Supreme Court even more important? After all, the court ultimately rules on the constitutionality of these regulations, and while overruling Roe and Casey won't ban abortion nationally, it will grant these same states the ability to more heavily regulate abortion or even ban it within their borders. Not so fast. Number four, overruling Roe won't touch the vast majority of American abortions. And I think this is a very, this is a really important one um, because this is what we're always hearing. We're always hearing an emphasis on overturning Roe v. Wade and almost an overemphasis that it is the answer to all the problems, uh, which it's not. French says, this section might be uh, the most dispiriting for pro-life readers. After all, overruling Roe has been the holy grail for the national pro-life movement for decades. End Roe and you liberate the states. End Roe and you can finally start working to ban abortion. So long as Roe stays, the law will remain unjust. It will permit the killing of innocent unborn children. But America is a very big, culturally and religiously diverse country. Support or opposition to Roe is hardly spread out evenly across the nation, and while there are many states that regulate abortion as much as they can, other states have passed laws to expand abortion access, and almost 100 million Americans live in states that provide public funding for abortions. Uh, he has in parentheses, the Hyde Amendment prohibits direct federal Medicaid funding for abortion, but it does not bind states. One of the results of cultural and legal diversity is that states have wildly different abortion rates, and many of the states that have passed the strictest abortion laws already had low abortion rates. This interactive chart, he's, he's got a link to it, so again, something else you'll want to check out the article for, uh, is a bit outdated. The data is from 2014, but still useful. It shows abortion rates varying from a low f of 5 per 1,000 women uh, in Utah to a high of 29 in New York State. That's immense variation. The consequence is that overruling Roe would have a disproportionate effect in states with already low abortion rates. A recent study calculated a potential 32.8% decrease in the abortion rate, quote, for the regions at high risk of banning abortions. But for the nation as a whole, the abortion rate would likely shrink by only 12.8% if that. That's right, even if the pro-life legal movement locates its holy grail, almost 90% of the American abortion regime would remain intact. The work of the pro-life movement would have to continue largely as it continues today. 5. But still, the pro-life movement has one immense advantage. Earlier in this newsletter, I described the thinking of, of millions of Americans as, quote, hazy and, quote, subjective. They don't fit neatly into a, quote, pro-life or, quote, pro-choice binary, either philosophically or politically. 
In fact, this muddled reality is one reason for the enduring abortion stalemate in American national politics. There just aren't enough single-issue voters to materially tip the balance of power. But yet, despite the muddle, the abortion rate and ratios continue to fall. And it's fallen dramatically. Why? Last month, researchers at Notre Dame issued a remarkable and interesting study called How Americans Understand Abortion. Their study wasn't a simple poll that asked its subjects if they were pro-life or pro-choice or whether they supported Roe. Instead, they conducted 217 in-depth interviews of a representative sample of the American population. Interestingly, abortion was not disclosed as the topic of the interview during the recruitment. The findings are fascinating. I could write an entire newsletter on its contents, but here are the top-line conclusions. 1. Americans don't talk much about abortion. 2. Survey statistics oversimplify Americans' abortion attitudes. 3. Position labels are imprecise substitutes for actual views about abortion. 4. Abortion talk concerns as much what happens before and after as it does abortion itself. 5. Americans ponder a, quote, good life as much as they do, quote, life. 6. Abortion is not merely political to everyday Americans, but intimately personal. And 7. Americans don't, quote, want abortion. Each point is worth discussing. Each point is vital. I found this first, and this, this also goes back to what I was talking about, about how nobody is pro-abortion. Nobody. Uh, I found the first point particularly poignant and the last point particularly pertinent. How many truthful, heartfelt conversations have you had in your entire life with friends or family about abortion? And no, I'm not talking about political conversations. I'm talking about genuine, transparent, and intimate converse conversations about personal lives. In reading the study, it became clear to me that if you want to save unborn life, then improving the conditions of conception, birth, and postnatal life for mother, father, and child are vitally important. And this is also a platform that many pro-choice uh, advocates also, this is also what they say. You know, it's the whole idea of, of making, making abortion unnecessary by focusing on improving these other factors that are leading to the abortions in the first place. Uh, this is how real people th uh, work through abortion questions. And he's got a, a quote here. Americans focus much of their attention on abortions, preconditions, alternatives, and after effects. We heard contemplations such as what was the nature of the re relationship between conceiving partners? Was it consensual? How did they approach pregnancy prevention, if at all? Was there sufficient knowledge about potential outcomes? What kinds of support, financial, relational, are available to people facing unplanned pregnancies? What are the stages of prenatal development? What health situations would put a mother or baby at risk? What does it take to raise a child financially, parentally? What impact does having a child have on professional aspirations or on reputation or on permanent ties between conceiving partners? What roles do or can men and women play in parenthood? How accessible is the choice like adoption? What are the conditions of children in foster care? This list of questions continues. The point here is that opinions on myriad social issues and corollary personal decisions frame attitudes well beyond the procedural yes or no or right or wrong of an abortion decision. It's the end of that, that quote. Uh, so French continues, so if all these questions come into play and if the combination of Americans who are solidly pro-choice or more moderate in their attitudes vastly outnumber those Americans who are solidly pro-life from conception until natural death, 
then what is the pro-life movement's immense advantage? It's the last point. It's the fact that abortion is not ultimately what people want. And again, he's, he's uh, quoting from the study, none of the Americans we interviewed talked about abortion as a desirable good. Views range in terms of abortion's preferred availability, justification, or need. But Americans do not uphold abortion as a happy event or something they want more of. From restrictive to ambivalent to permissive, we instead heard about the desire to prevent, reduce, and eliminate potentially difficult or unexpected circumstances uh, that predicate abortion decisions, whether of relationships, failed contraception, lack of education, financial hardship, or the like. Even those most supportive of abortion's legality nonetheless talk about it as, quote, hard, quote, serious, and, quote, not happy, or benign at best. Stories from those who have had abortions are likewise harrowing, even when the person telling it retains a commitment to abortion's availability. He says emphasis has been added to this. Uh, and that's the end of that quote. And he continues, this is not the shout your abortion mindset of tiny, tiny online fringe. The nation is full of women who want to have their children. In other words, pro-life Americans may not be approaching a culture biased in favor of their political position, but they are approaching a culture that is biased in favor of the pro-life outcome, the birth of a child who is loved. And that bias is manifesting itself in a decades-long shift to a culture that is viewing pregnancy as increasingly purposeful and increasingly precious. I'm not arguing that national politics don't matter at all. A blue wave could end the Hyde Amendment and result in direct federal funding of abortions. The best available data indicates that would result in more abortions, though it's far more clear that it would stop the overall decline in abortion rates and ratios. And it's a reason why pro-life Americans should resist a Democratic takeover of the Senate. But if you're pro-life, the encouraging reality is those things that matter most, your relationships and your local political community, are the things over which you have the most influence. The things that matter the least, the presidency and national politics, are those things most removed from your daily life. But I've been around the pro-life movement enough, uh, long enough to know that we often get this exactly backwards. We're most passionate about the president, yet too many of us are less interested in the crisis pregnancy center down the street. Without forsaking national politics, we can reverse that intensity. And if we reverse that intensity through loving, intentional outreach, we will reinforce the very decision uh, the data and our experience tells us a woman wants to make. And that, that is the end of David French's article. And, you know, you, again, as, I, as, as the previous article that I shared, you don't have to agree with every single one of the conclusions that he's come to, but it's more the data uh, that I'm interested in. And there's a lot of really interesting data there. A lot of really interesting, really interesting data. Um, uh, he didn't really go into it much, though. I think he, he links it in the article, but there was an Another uh, another chart. There's another chart by the CDC, which I actually just shared on Facebook uh, last week, which shows interestingly that abortion rates decreased the most, interestingly enough, under a Democratic presidency, not a Republican presidency, in the last 30 years. So, it reduced a lot under Clinton, and it reduced a lot under Obama. But under w, uh, George W. Bush and under Trump, 
it has remained the the drop has been very insignificant so i i think that's very interesting what but what this tells you is that this it's just it's not it's not a cut and dry topic it's not a cut and dry situation it's not black and white there's there's a lot of of moving pieces and there's a lot of data here that a lot of pro-life people just are not aware of and nobody really talks about it because everybody is so hyper focused on getting another Republican in the Oval Office so that we can outlaw abortion. That is the number one focus. And like David brings up in this article, hyper focusing on Roe v. Wade as the Holy Grail when in the grand scheme of things, it's really not going to change that much. It's it's really it's. I mean, there's a discussion to be had about whether it's it's worth it to go after that, but it's just it it doesn't make sense to view it as the ultimate answer to the problem. And then in addition to that, again, nobody, no reasonable person is pro-abortion. Pretty much everybody, every the average American is agreed on that, that we don't really we don't really like abortion. It's just that there are other things involved with the whole situation. And we all, what, where we all disagree is how to remove abortion from the picture. That's, that's, that's what we disagree on. But I feel like if we can bring ourselves to a place where we are willing to really converse with quote unquote the other side and we can hammer out what are what are our common goals here if our common goals here are we want to remove abortion from the picture let's talk about how we accomplish that but the problem that i have been seeing particularly in the right side of the spectrum i'm not saying this doesn't happen in the left side either but just predominantly in the right side because that's that's the side that I grew up in. The, it, it, this is, you know, we cannot lose. We cannot lose any ground on this battle. Uh, in this battle, we cannot give Democrats and liberals even an inch. We have to stop them at all costs, and that's quite frankly why you end up with people like Donald Trump in the the Oval Office because you have a at any cost mentality. That's not obviously not the only reason why he got elected, but that was certainly part of it. It's it's a a it's a the ends justify the means mentality. And sure, I'm I'm sure there's there is sometimes when that is maybe justifiable, but far too often I think that we just use that as an excuse in places where it actually is not applicable. And and I would I would submit that that electing Trump was one such situation. I mean I had I had friends who knew and still know he's not fit for that office and yet they believed that the ends justify justify the means that I'm sure they don't like him, but, you know, he would put a, a, a conservative in the Supreme Court and, you know, the, the ends usually are, will end abortion. But it's just, it's not that simple. It's really not that simple, especially in this case. I mean, that's just, to me, that's a lot of, that's a lot of naive thinking about how all of this works. But there's not enough discussion going on. And that's, that's what really 
bugs me about it. I, I would love to talk more about this, but I'm way over time. So I'm going to wrap this episode up, but we'll probably pick up this discussion in a future episode. But really the point in all of this is that A, the abortion issue is so much more complicated than than most of us really realize, most of us pro-lifers really realize, and B, get out there and talk. Talk with pro-choice proponents. Ask them why they feel what they feel. Ask them what they think about abortion itself. Ask, just ask them questions. I would even encourage you to have a discussion where it's all one-sided, you know, where it's just, you're just asking and listening to the answers. Don't turn it into a, you don't need, need to turn it into a debate, I guess is what I'm going, uh, what I'm getting at. And don't just listen to what people within your own camp are saying about people outside the camp. That's just, that is not healthy and it is not fair. So <laughs> I, I, I think about um, uh, sermons that I've listened to or, or churches that I've been to where at the end of the sermon, you know, the pastor will be like, you know, I challenge each one of you to, to witness to somebody uh, before next Sunday. And that's kind of what I'm doing here. I challenge you before the next episode in two weeks to get out there and talk with a pro-choice proponent and, you know, even the other way around, if you're if you're a pro-choice uh, a proponent listening to this, get out there and, and talk to a pro-lifer and ask them why they think the way they, that they think, what brought them to their conclusions. You know, just the point is dialogue. The point is learning. The point is engaging with intent to learn, with intent to understand. And that's that is something that I cannot encourage enough. I cannot overstate that. If you are able to, it would really mean a lot to me if you could um, not only help spread the word about the podcast, but uh, if you would be willing to hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review because it because it does help with uh, visibility of the show and uh, it would be it would be awesome to be able to get this out to other people and as I've said before if if you have friends that seem like they might be in a similar uh, politically enigmatic position as I am then I, I definitely encourage you to share this uh, share this with people and uh, hopefully we can we can get a little a little interesting politically enigmatic. Uh, community going here and of course if you have any questions or comments feedback whatever you whatever you have if you have any critiques um, I'm sure on a topic like this there very likely will be some uh, some critiques <laughs> um, I, I, I invite it I, I welcome it uh, you can reach me at Christian in America podcast at gmail.com uh, again just a reminder there is no letter a at the beginning of that it is just Christian in America podcast at gmail.com and as always check out the show notes in the episode description for this episode um, because I, I put links to any and all articles that I read on the air and as well as links to the various ways you can access this podcast and the email address that you can reach me at. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. There's also links to uh, the recommendations, um, the couple of recommendations that I brought up in this episode. So be sure to take a look at those as well. You can also find me on Twitter at ACIA underscore podcast, or you can just search a Christian in America podcast and I'm on there posting controversial things like I do. Also on Facebook, there is a, uh, a Christian in America podcast Facebook page as well. So check those out if you get the chance. 
looks like we're going for a bi-weekly schedule, by the way. So until next time, may the grace of Christ be with you. Thank you for listening. A Christian in America podcast is a production by myself, Joe Harrison. Sound engineering, editing, and music were also provided by myself. To learn more about me and this podcast, visit us on the web at achristianinamerica.lionsmouthent.net or follow the link in the podcast description. This podcast is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and your other favorite podcasting services. Copyright 2020 by Joe Harrison.